Testing, testing, one, two, three. Testing, testing, one, two, three. We are on the air. This is Thesis. Three, two, one. We are on the air. This is Thesis. Everything is everything. I am your host, Jay Marie. How you doing out there, folks? Thank you for checking in on us today and joining us. Coming to you live from Zombie Land. Hope everything is going well. Uh, okay, so, you know, um, I've been lately digging in a lot into Athens. Uh, and, uh, you know, today I just dug in um, on some... Uh, on some his history of Athens, right? And um, I, I came across a lot of amazing, amazing information. I mean, Athens is just uh, wow. I mean, we, you know, I brought at, at, up Athens before, but as I, as we do, as we delve dove in today, as I dove in today, I started seeing how much of 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 modern Western, what we know, you know, Western society today comes from the ideas that were born and nurtured in Athens. Wow, it was so amazing. The history of Athens uh, and what came from Athens is just so, so amazing. So today uh, we are going to nerd out. <laughs> So I want you to buckle in because it is going to be very uh, interesting ride. Uh, because what I'm going to do today is a little bit different. Uh, because this is this is what where all my research has led me today. The research as far as what I've been digging into today and in the past few days with Athens and Socrates and you know those type of things, right? Because uh, even in our last shows uh, with, when I was talking about pieces of the puzzle. You know, we brought up Athens and Socrates and all this stuff, right? So I've been on a dig, I've been on a on a dive with Athens and Greece for a while, okay? Uh, but it, it came it came today to a, a point to where I wanted to come on and talk to you about something that that I was uh, thinking about, okay? So today, what I'm gonna do is um, I'm gonna offer up front a a thesis, right, or a a hypothesis, hypothesis or thesis about Socrates. Um, so here's the here's the thesis: is um, Socrates is the Christ figure of Athens. Socrates is the Christ figure of Athens. Okay, so what I want to do is we're gonna we're gonna explore that thesis right because you might say well why do you say that like how 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 is uh, how is socrates related to the christ or the or the you know the idea of what socrates did related to the christ so that's what we're going to dig into okay so we're going to dig in and we're going to examine and explore and try to see where if the if that thesis is is correct or negative right like a like a science project sort of but of, of research okay so a little bit about Socrates um, he was not an aristocrat 
Este, he was born, uh, his father was a, a mason. And, uh, you know, he was, his dad taught him how to be a mason, you know. He was also a soldier and fought in some of the wars. Uh, so, but, but once he got older and was able to, you know, like, quote unquote, retire, right? Este, you know, that's when he began his journey and his quest for, for knowledge and, you know, started questioning. And one of his, his, his things was questioning, you know? So the Socratic method, as we know today, and as we've brought up here before, is how you question ideas. You question ideas and, and those things to try to um, give you a better, uh, like the imagery of the idea, you break it down so it gives you a better picture, right? So that's kind of like what the Socratic method is, and that's, that's what he was doing. He was quite a strange fellow, by all accounts, um, by the writings of, uh, of uh, um, Xenophon, uh, his, his, one of his students. Este, apparently he had big bulbous eyes and a big nose. His nostrils were really wide and he wasn't a looker whatsoever, you know, and he really didn't keep himself. He walked around barefooted and just, you know, in a dirty, in a dirty robe, basically. Este, and walked around and just had conversations with um, the people in Athens. And his thing, like I brought up a minute ago, was questioning, right? But but questioning not, you know, because you can be an uh, um, you can be a jerk and be asking questions and you know kind of jerky or whatever. Not like that whatsoever. More like in more like because he wanted to know stuff. He wanted so when he talked to people and let's say they gave him their political view, let's say. He would ask questions about their political view, so they themselves can begin to explain it in some in ways to where maybe even they started realizing things about their you know their thoughts about these ideas or whatever maybe got sharpened or maybe got you know to where they said oh, oh I'm wrong you know the way I was thinking, but the analyzation through conversation right and through dialogue. And through questioning, right? Um, uh, the Socratic method, right? Through uh, uh, um, questioning, but there's the other word. Anyhow, so, you know, by asking questions to the people so they can explain themselves. And then once they explain themselves, then he would break. So that's that was his thing, you know? And um, apparently he was very popular. I mean, popular. I mean, people liked having conversations with him he wasn't a man of power or anything like that more um the only kind of power that he wielded was his ability uh, of reason and intellect right because he is he is the father of intellect and reason well reason actually not intellect he is the father of reason he's accredited um with giving us reason because reason, reasoning is when you weigh out the different ideas, right? The the pluses and the minus and, and, and the 
right, pros and cons of ideas, and then you measure them out, and you play out scenarios in your head, and you say, wait, maybe that doesn't work. How about this other scenario? You know what I mean? Reasoning, right? Um, he, that's what, that's what he gave us. Uh, um, that's what he's attributed attributed to. And you know, he was, uh, he was, he was poor by all accounts. From what I could tell, is he wasn't a man of wealth, and he just wandered around. And um, he didn't give lectures, you know, like a teacher. And here's the thing: is so he, he he's it's a, he, he was a unique character because he didn't stand before people and give lectures like other let's say philosophers or aristocrats and those type of people right politicians that would give these big speeches and stuff and some of them were smart and some of them were philosophers or whatever but he was more um more about just the search for knowledge he didn't care about popularity that's not what he would he didn't care about wealth he didn't care about political power you know because at this point at this point in athens you know they were going through a little bit of tumultuous times um because at this point, Athens had been through a lot, and um, they were very successful. So, in what we would call the Greek, um, the Greek Empire, the two major states, the two most powerful states, was Greek was uh, Athens and uh, Sparta. And at this point in time, Athens wanted to solidify power in the empire. Um, so they were beefing with Sparta and they wanted to fight with, you know, and so they they were actually battling beefing with Sparta around this same time period of when, when, when Socrates was walking around and talking to people and all that. When he was, at, when he was a grown man at this time, towards the end of his life, this is what was going on in uh, Athens. But so what would he do? He would go around and talk to people. And using reasoning and stuff. And now, like, um, you know, I had kind of mentioned last time a little bit about prophets, right? How prophets come and warn the people about changing their behaviors and stuff. You know, Socrates, what he did for the people was something similar. But, but, um, uh, because see, it's... And it's a very, very just slight differences because, like, look, the prophets that we know, we I I can imagine that they were vocal because remember, prophetus, uh, prophetus means to speak forth, right? Like someone I can imagine somebody standing before a group of people speaking forth, right? But speaking forth truth and whatever, right? The prophets that we know, let's say from the Bible, right? Now. The the thing the way that Socrates was speaking was not like in a prophetic prophetus speaking forth in front of the people. No, he was speaking forth, but on an individual one-on-one level basis. He would gather in a group of five, six, you know, and have discussions sometimes one-on-one, -on -one, you know. But but his main interest was the was the um, growth, the enlightenment um, of the of himself and the people that he was having these discussions with. Now remember, in Athens at that moment in time, 
we're talking about a pure democracy. So every single issue of the state, remember, because Athens is what we would call a city-state. Um, I don't have the uh, ge geographic, um, you know, how big it was or whatever, but just imagine like Dallas, right? Uh, Dallas, it's a city, but it's a state in its own right. Because outside of their whatever their ge geographical boundaries, then Sparta, you know, Sparta was over there. And then uh, the uh, Corinth was over there. So, you know, all these different states. But see, they were like a confederacy because they all worked together. And yes, they fought each other too, but they all worked together uh, in a unified uh, body uh, uh, under the Greeks. Especially under, when they became, uh, when the threat came from Persia. When the when the when per, when Athens um, be, started getting more powerful and and rich, the Persian Empire saw them as a future threat, so they thought they would stomp them out early, you know, before they grew too big. But by this point, Athens, the people of Athens were were free men. By this point, they were already making decisions as free men. They were already voting. Remember. It was a it was a pure democracy. They voted for everything, war, generals, everything, right? So when news came that um, that you know that the Persians were gonna were coming and they were bringing hell with them, right? Uh, the the people voted. They said, no, we're gonna defend ourselves. We're gonna defend Athens. And you know they had ragtag little army. What they called hoplites was you know, just those, back then you had to buy your own weapons, <laughs> you know, so they had the little, little army of hoplites, and then everybody else who can pick up a stick, or a sword, or whatever, right, and this little army of about, I believe 10,000, um, fought off, uh, if, if I'm not, if I'm, forgive me, but, you know, the numbers, because they changed, because there were so many battles, but I believe they were, they were outnumbered two to one, so like, the Persians brought around 20,000 at that time, you know, and, and the Spartan, I'm sorry, the, the, um, the Athenians fought and they just routed the Persians. Because uh, when we look and as historians look, you know, the Persian army was mostly slaves. So they were ordered to go and fight compared to the Athenians who were free men who chose to go and fight and defend their country, you know, and sorry, a little sidetrack, but while we're in it, so after Athens beat, um, um, the per Persia that first time around, as they, they were really happy, right, they were like, man, we did good, <laughs> you know, and, 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 uh, you know, they kind of got back, you know, because look, <clears throat> let's back up a little bit before that so you know how did this idea of voting come to pass right so there was a time prior to when the democracy thing started there was tyrants right there was always leaders and then there was aristocrats and you know um, all kinds of different systems but mostly of, of like kings and stuff right like where there's aristocrats and the rich ruled and whatever right but there came this moment where um, where there was an uprising from the people. The people. This was before they were 
you know, free, you know, before they were, before they, before they were considered free uh, citizens, right? Este, there was an uprising, and um, they actually called back a, a prior leader who had been, um, who had gotten exiled. Este, and, uh, so there was an uprising, and, uh, the people took away the power from the, uh, whoever was ruling at that time, right? And, uh, they had called back a guy who, who was exiled earlier, uh, because remember, um, well, anyhow, he, so he comes, um, uh, he, he, he comes back, um, and I believe his name is Solon. So he comes back, and they because they he has history with the Athenians, right? He was an he was an Athenian uh, citizen, but the leaders at that time, you know, um, he they saw him as a threat. So instead of killing him, they they exiled him. Uh, but once the people uprose and took the power away from, uh, uh, you know, the ruling the ruling class that time, they called back Solon because they needed they needed help. Um, and they wanted his wisdom. So he comes back and he says, damn, okay. So in, in his mind, he was thinking, okay, so what should I do? Should I step in as their, as their ruler, as their new tyrant? Should I appoint, should I appoint another tyrant? So he, so he was thinking, no, this is just what they went through. So what did he do? He gathered the people for conversations. He said, hey, you know what? All the adult males in each family, let's all gather, or even all the people. Maybe at first it was all people, right? Because they had just fought a revolution. They had just uprised and kicked out the, the monarchy or whoever. And he gathered the people together uh, because in, 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 they wanted his wisdom. And in, in a strange way, his wisdom was because he thought, man, well, how about we bring everybody together and we talk about it and then we can all figure it out, like, because they needed a new government. They they called him for his wisdom because they said, hey, help us uh, design a new government. Right? And in his wisdom, he's, you know, maybe unintentional wisdom, he, he said, let's bring everybody together and let's talk about it and then we'll decide together. Right? So they all came to this place that was sort of on a hill, sort of theatery, you know, amphith amphitheatery. And they talked, and then, and then, and, and then, you know, ideas got started getting thrown out. Is how, how should we rule, and who should rule, and this and that, and they went on and on. But they eventually came to, okay, so there comes, and think about this. This is the amazing part: is when you look at it in the eyes of nature, right? In the eyes of nature, in its purest sense, evolutionary nature of ideas or whatever, right? So there, you have all the people. Let's say. Leaders of each family, and there's hundreds of people, right? Or maybe even thousands, depending on the population size at that time. Because Athens wasn't always just a huge metropolis. But anyhow, never mind all that. And um, um, so they gather, they talk, and, and then somehow the idea, when, when they started, let's say, okay, well, let's, let's see who thinks this is a good idea and who doesn't, right? So they started think, taking votes, what we know as a vote. <clears throat> but they would use like a pebble, um, you know, a black pebble for yes, a white pebble for no, you know, something like that. 
or they would raise their hands, yes, no, they would do a vocal, yes, no, as they, and, and, and this just continued, it continued, um, and that's how they ran the city, by everybody participating in, in, um, as the, the participation in the governance, because every, everybody voted on everything, on every single issue. And it was the majority rule, you know. So when it came to money, money stuff, or or the fields, or the grain, or or taxation and stuff like that, you know, everybody participated in it. And then so as things got a little bit better because of people's participation, and it was a very, it was a peaceful time, you know, because you do need peace, um, as the you know for prosperity and stuff, but also the the whole the willingness of the people to try new things or whatever. Esther, but 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 these ideas started you know started growing and they started doing really well and then lo and behold uh, um, oh well after the Persians attacked and you know they fought them off remember they were ragtag at that time they didn't have a big army they didn't have a navy or nothing like that you know but after the Persians attacked that first time um, and they and uh, and uh, and Athens won they found a vein of silver. Right in the middle of the mountain, in the middle of the city, whatever. So the so to give you an idea of how this worked, the government the governance worked. The people voted on what to do with the money. So they were having these conversations, you know, kind of like what we what what people do in modern day, you know, in in, in parliament or in in uh, in Congress, right? They sit and they debate they debate ideas. So they were debating what should we do with this money because it was a shit ton of money, like. 400 talents uh, and you know the way it translates is uh, something like uh, I don't know a, a talent is probably something like 250 million dollars in today's standards something like that. anyway it was a it, it was just think a shit ton of money right and this was and, and this was Athens it wasn't even like a huge empire it was a city remember city state the size of Dallas, maybe, and not even population-wise, maybe geographical. You know what I'm saying? Anyhow, so they found all this, all this silver, and the, and the people wanted to vote. There was a popular um, idea going around. They wanted to um, share, split all the wealth among the people. As the you know, and and people would 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 go out and say, remember. This was a pure democracy, so anybody can speak. Now, some people were better at speaking, so they would, you know, hog up more time. But but it's okay because some were really good at speaking, and they were actually really good leaders. And I called them leaders because they weren't actually like actual representatives of a district. They were just so good at what they did that people looked to them for their leadership in this assembly, right? Let's call it the assembly. Actually, that is what they call it. Uh, so there was great speakers and, you know, what we would call leaders in the assembly. And there was one guy named Themistocles, which, you know, he was very, you know, the reason why he was really good is because he was very smart or whatever, right? So, you know, they had just fought off the, the Persians and, you know, it was, it was really bloody and whatever. But um, instead of, he, he thought, well, instead of, instead of, um sharing the money amongst ourselves how about we build a fleet or something you know 
in his mind he's thinking we need to protect ourselves from the Persians and what better way than to build a fleet and then they went to like the best ship makers you know because they had a shit ton of money to spend right so they built the fleet as the and but the reason he got them to agree in the assembly was because he said we can protect ourselves from these guys over here right the uh you know i'm not sure if he if he said the spartans or some little island nation right because he didn't want to bring up the persians because people were scared they were like man they didn't want to deal with the persians but he knew he knew in his mind that at some point they were going to have to deal with the persians again so they built this amazing um navy with these badass ships just you know y'all gotta search you google the triremes they were like battering rams nigga they would like you know they didn't have cannons and shit back then they would like boom pull up pull up next to each other and like fight you know what i'm saying that's how that's how quote unquote they were supposed to fight that's how they fought back then but see these fools right here made the the ship itself was basically a battering ram uh with a ship built around it. So what they would do is they would ram the shit out of your ship. And boom, you're sinking, baby. You know what I'm saying? And uh, and they developed strategies. And um, they can turn. Um, the, they can do Becca bust a U-turn. You know, the boat was like 30 meters. Uh, 30, 30 yards, you know, like football field. 30 meters long. As they, wait, was it 30 meters? That's nothing. Wait, is that something? How big is 30 meters? That's uh, 90 feet. Oh, no, that. Okay, okay. 90 feet. That's pretty big. Este, um, battering ram shit, you know what I'm saying? And and uh, and they could bust a U-turn, like, in like in two boat distance. Like, they were really good at, 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 um, at maneuvering, at maneuvering uh, these triremes. And, um... So apparently they had, uh, at some point, you know, the Persians came and they had to fight them again and whatever, right? So these triremes, uh, these boats and, and their and their battles that they won uh, eventually against against the Persians, it was bloody though. It wasn't, it wasn't easy. I mean, Athens burned to the ground. They let, they let Athens burn to the ground, but, but in, they, look, they had to let Athens burn to the ground. Persians burned it to the ground. But that's when they jumped on their ships and said, all right, Persians, meet us out here, punks, you know. And uh, and sure enough, then they fought them off in the in the water and they would stay. They were superior. The Greeks and the, the, you know, because it wasn't just the Athenians at that point. At that point, all the you know, all the Greek states had joined because they were all at stake. All their liberties were at stake. But uh, but they the Greek. Uh, I'm sorry, the Athenian. Um, fleet is it was the, was the cream of the crop you know back then you know so they were they were the main force uh in in beating the persians but they sacrificed athens but in their sacrifice of the city athens survived the idea liberty they their freedom they were free men they didn't die i mean they didn't die a you know, a a uh, a futile death, and they didn't get in. Their families didn't get enslaved. The idea of Athens continued to survive because of the choices that they had made. Now, it wasn't just a choice like, "What should we do?" No, no. Back then, they used to um, they used to reach out to the oracles, and they reached out to the oracle, and the oracle said, 
man, why you even gonna fight? You know, you might as well just run. The first, the oracle said, y'all, y'all better just run. You're doomed, basically. And and then the the assembly was like, shit, they didn't like that. They were like, what are we gonna do? Let's pack it up, right? Because back then they listened to what the oracle said. So they asked another question. Um, they 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 reformed the question, and they sent again the envoys to the oracle. And the question was reformed a little bit more like, um. What what should we save or what will be left standing? Some the the question was different because these oracles were tricky. They'll give you something and then it, you have to do some interpretate interpreting. But then sometimes it was more a little bit more direct. So they went back and said, well, what's 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 gonna be left standing or what's not gonna be destroyed or whatever. And the oracle said something about the wooden wall, right? And then so the only thing they could think of is wooden wall. You know, part of the Acropolis had some wood on it and stuff. And, and people were saying, maybe this is your Acropolis. And then um, este, Aristophanes, uh, I'm sorry, Themistocles was was like, uh, no, nah, he was thinking it's the boat. You know, it's, it's our fleet. It's a wall of defense. You know, in his mind, that's what he thought. So then they agreed, okay, and boom, and they, and they sent all the women away. And all the men jumped on 200 ships that they had. 200 ships. Plus all the other ships of whoever else joined the fight. But this was the biggest fleet, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, and they fought them off or whatever. And then, then after they beat back the Persians and Athens was burned to the ground, they came back and started anew. Fresh. You know? And that's when democ democracy, you know, and, and pro the prosperity really started flourishing again you know because their ideals yeah the city got burnt down but their ideals didn't you know and the thing about the greek states was there was this pride about 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 being a, a, a greek you know about about um the 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 stories of old you know the heroes uh, uh as the um, homers you know the iliad and like all of those stories that's that's like their history of the Greeks, you know, they had all these different states and city states and everything. Sure, but remember, I talked last time about they were all unified under the Greek like umbrella, right? The Greek states, the Greek, all of this, the mythology, you know, um, all of it, right? They were all unified under that. <clears throat> este, so that didn't die, you know. When their city burned, they continued, and and so then, they went on, and they got more powerful, and um, you know, it's just what came from Athens, what came from Athens wasn't just you know what we know about intellect and stuff like that, but art, artisanry, vasing, the pottery, you know, uh, it's the theater performances, you know. All these, 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 you know, ideas, public spaces, like in Athens was was the the idea of public space. So what they did is what whatever was the like um, kingdom, um, not the kingdom, but let's say like the uh, the palace of the prior tyrant before they became free people, they turned it into a public space, which became where they would gather and I think part of the assembly and you know what I'm saying, uh, parks. You know, they were the first to think of of 
of necessities of of the citizenry. Now, mind you, necessities when it came to let's say farming and the food and the, and the amounts of food and this and that, right? But you know, like public space for gathering and for performances and for all this stuff like that, like that was born there. Este, uh, it's just, oh man, y'all gotta do, y'all gotta, y'all gotta, y'all gotta check that out, man. So they become very power, you know, uh, powerful, um, basically like an economic powerhouse, you know, and military, but, uh, ocean, you know, ocean fleet, their boats, you know, their boat, they were, them boats, they knew how to work them, nobody could mess with the, with the Athenians, you know, este, but, but dang it, kind of like, um, and, and here's where the thesis starts kind of showing this, rearing its little face, you know, so when we talked about pieces of the puzzle, este, you know how we talked about how things look cyclical, and I mean, human nature is cyclical, and um, you know, like you could take the story of the Jews and kind of multiply it throughout mankind, right? Well, well, the story of Athens is okay. So let's just remember the story of the Jews, right? Whatever, cyclical, um, and this and that. Anyway, the, uh, so the Athenians, as as they became more um, um, a a economic powerhouse. As they, they had more power now to affect change in their neighboring states because now, of course, their neighboring states want to do business with them and want to do so. Then and then they would, you know, tax, you know, if there's trades or whatever. So that's how they became really rich and you know, as they powerful. But but man, the thing is, is mankind, right? You know, remember everything was popular vote, everything. So, you know, everything was decided by the people, every single issue, right? And, you know, mankind's imperfect. You know, we can find balance and stuff, but, you know, I think sometimes life proves that we can lose control of ourselves, and it, it also reflects in a society. You know, because the at this point in time, it's like, um, you know, if if somebody had a political beef with somebody else, and they could they could gather and rile up enough people, you know, to exile that guy because he's a punk and I don't like him and he's a threat to my ambitions. Hey guys, uh, rile people up. Hey, let's take a vote. I say we exile that guy. All right, all right. And then, boom, vote. Majority win. Exile. What? Damn. So see, the people started losing that thing, right, that essence, that whatever it was that was the pride of being free men and doing things orderly and like for the betterment of all people and stuff, but see the things started happening and this started happening over, you know, a lot more and more and more because some people are really slick and they're, you know, they can talk people into, uh, as the you know, into voting a certain way for certain things or whatever, and the corruption or whatever. So the people themselves began to get corrupt. And society itself, remember, everything was voted by the people. Everything. 
wars, campaign, whatever, started getting a little prideful. Man, look at us. We're the shit. We're the shit. Look at our fleet. We're the best in Greece. We run some shit. You know, they, they didn't run. See, we're going to do some more digging, but Athens was considered the capital of Greece, of the Greek Empire, right? And somewhat, I could see how it was because of their influence and their money and their power and the way they ran their society. I can see how other surrounding city-states send envoys to meet with them and then the people would vote. You know, let's say the envoy from Corinth came and said, hey, let's do a deal with uh, some grain or whatever. And then the people of Athens vote on it. And then, okay, so you know what I mean? So they were very powerful, you know? Now, by no means that they run the empire. Remember, it was a confederation of states. That's the thing about about Greece. The Greece, the ancient Greece is so amazing. And we're going to dig later on about that. But right now, let's go back to Athens. So they started getting prideful. You know, the people. Look at our fleet, you know. We're the, we're the, you know, we're the shit here in Greece. We're run stuff in Greece. And uh, and they've always had a beef. Now, remember, I bring up how the states got along with each other, but they also beefed with each other. Like Spart Sparta and Athens had always beefed with each other. And, you know, but they'll come together when they're under attack. And if, you know, the way they did when Persia was, was uh, attacking them. But dang, they always had beef and they were always fighting. And at this time of prosperity, they were the two strongest states in Greece at that time. The Spartans, Sparta, and Athens. And uh, the Athenian people got a little too big, not big, but a little too, yeah, pride and big for their bridges, you know, for their bridges. <laughs> not bridges like London bridges, but pant bridges, right? It's the... So they, they they wanted to take out they wanted to take out Sparta, you know. So they had this long battle that just just kind of draw drawed out and just you know as never really achieving achieving much. As the and the people were getting annoyed, right? Um, some generals came back and like, and the people were like, "Well, why haven't y'all won?" And well, damn, well, you know, it's it's rough, it's hard or whatever. And you know what? The people voted, "Hey, execute these generals." Majority rule, boom, they executed those generals. Uh, you know, because it was a land, it was a land effort, I believe. So some smart guy said, "Hey, you know what? Let's fight. Um, let's. There's a little island." Uh, that has a beef, and let's help them, like a proxy, you know, those little proxy wars, right? Something like that. A proxy war, let's help them, and then, but like, that's how we're going to beat, that's how we're going to beat Sparta, right? But they were prideful about it, and they send out their fleet, they all voted, and yeah, they send out their fleet, and, uh, you know, not, they never heard back, they never heard back from them. And you're going to hear this story in a little bit because we have a little surprise uh, coming up. You know, I will do it. But anyway, uh, so Spar the, the, the pride of Sparta led them to their own destruction. Now, like I've spoken about before is how 
like 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 just real quick side little sidetrack but this is thesis you know like in america right i i said how the founders wanted to devise a system so imagine ooh wait think about that moment earlier when i talked about that the, that point in athens history when uh, they had just won a revolution and then they brought the people together to figure out how they were going to build the the new system um so that's what they did at the Cong at the at the Congress at the um, Constitutional Congress or the um, right the first Congress or whatever they call it uh, and, and our founding each state 13 states you know colonies states city states not even city states these were colonies because of, of, of anyhow send representatives to eat you know what I'm saying to vote and to come up with an idea of how we're gonna govern right They're very similar. Oh, uh, so little sidetrack of it uh, where were we um the governance and the people and uh they got prideful este, and they lost and they lost but at that at this time este you know at this point in time where we are right now though that they send out that fleet to try to win to fight that proxy war that's when Socrates was around. And that's when he was trying to talk to the people about, hey, you know, so I'm going to put it in quotes. Hey, we need to change our ways. But more like, hey, we need to change our ways of thinking, you know, because his whole thing was reason, right? Because remember, every adult male over 18 got to vote. And that's how he wanted to change society's way of thinking by talking to people individually and helping them inspire them to think differently so maybe they could vote differently now that wasn't his intention his intention was just the search of knowledge and wisdom that was his intention that's all he cared about that's what he wanted okay so as the um the effect you know a cause and effect like the uh aftermath or i'm trying to find the sorry i lose i try to find the right words but so so from what he wanted what he wanted what he was doing right what he was doing because of his search for knowledge knowledge and wisdom had these unseen unintended by his you know through his eyes or standard unintended by him co uh, positive consequences on society in Athens but the political types uh, didn't like him because they said he was stirring up the people stirring them up to think freely to think differently of what was going on in society at that time in order and see not so they can vote differently he didn't it wasn't about that for him but that was one of the unintended you know uh, positive I, I can't think of the right word but you know, I say repercussions repercuss are just negative, but I mean this was a, this was a positive effect of what of of an unintended positive effect of what he was doing in society, and the ruling class. Remember, it was a there wasn't a ruling class per se, but remember the more rich, the more political savvy, the ones that can talk better, they become kind of leaders because the regular folk look to them and then they say hey so the guy brings up an idea how about we vote on this and the people say yes or no or whatever right so there was these factions you know you know political factions or whatever 
They didn't like what Socrates was doing. They saw it as he was rabble-rousing the people. When in fact all he wanted them was to, you know, think. Rationalize ideas. You know, think them through and stuff, you know. They didn't like it. And uh, after the debacle with the proxy war, they needed someone to blame. So in comes Socrates. You know, Socrates wasn't rich. He didn't have money. He wandered the streets just talking to people. Like I said, he wasn't quite a teacher, but he did have students. Uh, Plato was one of his students. And uh, Xenophon was another student. He had several students, but um, but they he never wrote nothing down either. His whole thing was talking. Others wrote what he said down. Plato wrote what he said down. Xenophon did, and other students did also. Este, in short, he was um, taken to. Tr he was charged with, you know, some trumped-up charges. Taken a trial. Uh, found guilty. And sentenced to death for wanting to change not even and see my bad that was my mistake not wanting to change anything because through his way of speaking with people and communicating with people and his way of reasoning and his way of being and the actual positive effect that it was having on society the ruling class didn't like it. And if history or Mother Nature teaches us anything is that power will defend itself. You know, monarchies will defend themselves. Oligarchies will defend themselves. Systems will defend themselves. And Socrates was a threat to that system. He was the virus. And see, here's the thing. The virus could be, it's a negative connotation. But he was the good virus. It was, it was a, a positive virus. What's, a, what's the word for positive virus? Anybody know? Anybody know? Let's just, I'll just continue on with my thoughts. So, he was like the positive virus that was needed in, in Athenian society at that time. And the power structure saw it as a threat to their power. Because at this point, these political factions and stuff, you know, just uh, were, they were just, I mean, voting for everything, you know, exiling people. Murdering people like they were just losing it. They were voting for all kinds of, and this and and he saw it. And he saw it. And I'm sure he understood and knew that 
the best way to 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 fight what was happening in Athens was just to talk and have conversations and to try to spread that that desire for 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 logic and reason and you know history has taught us that when somebody rises up against the powers that be they take them out i mean just think of any i mean how how many examples do we need and it's not like this is the cyclical part this is the thesis part is wow look at the story that we just told right isn't it very similar to let's say um, the jewish story because when that pride came in, that's when they started losing. They lost it all. I mean, they lost that power. Not all. They lost that power. They had to succumb eventually to the Spartans. Right? But the thing is that their pride is what was their downfall. And their downfall didn't come from without. It came from within. Remember these recurring themes. So at that point in history, they killed off uh, what the oracle, who the oracle said was the wisest of all men. Now, why did the oracle say that that Socrates was the wisest of all men? Uh, she said because out of all men, out of all, you know, so-called wise men, not men I'm paraphrasing is. Um, and this is not exactly a paraphrase, this is just a translation, is that Socrates knows that he does not know. He is aware of his ignorance. He is aware of what he doesn't know. So that is what drives him forward to seek out the answers to what he doesn't know now we can understand why the questions, so many questions, like the little kid, why? Why are the why is the sky blue? Why? Oh, because the water, son. Why? Oh, well, because the water is blue. Well, why is water blue? Oh, well, oxygen and, you know what I'm saying? That innocence of wanting to know. But he was a grown man, of course, an adult. He was like 70, 80, whatever. Este, but that's why the oracle said that he was the wisest because he knew that he didn't know and that is humility knowing that you don't know that's beautiful now you know what we're gonna stop right here for a second because I wanted to circle back to my thesis at the beginning of the show. Uh, that Socrates was the Christ figure of Athens. Oh, we're not done. We are not done. But think of everything you know about the Christ story, of Jesus Christ story. Think of everything you know, like of what the story, let's say, of what the Jews went through or whatever, right? But, but, but mind you, again, y'all know the story, right? I'm not here to push religion. Just to look at the stories and like, wow. Because remember, we're talking cyclical nature of humanity. Cyclical nature of human uh, societal evolution, human behavior, cyclical. Wow. You can see, wow, wow, they're kind of similar in, in different ways. 
similar you know, because the Jews were trying to build a nation, right? Because the whole story behind, let's say, what the Jewish people were always after and even still after today, well, what was to build, to, to have their own city, their own state, right? Um, their own nation, their own land. The, this land that belongs to the people that they can claim their own. They seek their own governance, you know, right? What Their own stake, their own claim. You know what I'm saying? In a general sense, that's what the story is telling. Now, in a general sense, what Athenian story is telling is the is not the creation because that was, this isn't the beginning of Athens. This was more like a moment of, of reformation or something like that because they went through several stages of, of, of certain leaders who tried to reform and this and that. Este, uh, but but they got to the point to where where like I said earlier, they just got too prideful. You know, and that was the beginning of their downfall. And at the beginning of their downfall, like the big downfall, as the, that's where, not at the beginning, but at, during that time, that's where Socrates was right there, right smack in the middle of it. And they uh, ordered his execution after they found him guilty of whatever the fuck. Well, we're going to talk about, so it's not like whatever, forgive my language. I didn't, I was trying not to cuss in this episode, so. Forgive me for that. Este, um, and they executed him. And But now, so, the Christ figure, right? So now what I want to just point real quick, before we get to the next part, is 2000, more than 2,000 years later, because he got killed around 399 BC or something like that. Yeah? Um, uh, something right around there. Um, we're still talking about his teachings. We're still talking about Socrates. What? Isn't that very similar to the Christ? 2,000 years later, we're still talking about Christ. Why? Because of what he taught, what he teached, right? Teach, thought. Uh, forgive me my accent. What he taught the people. We're still learning about what he taught the people. Why? Because some of his students, his followers, his, um, what are they called? The, um, the disciples, right? The followers, they took his teachings and then they taught it to other people. That's what Plato did. That's what Xenophon did. That's what some of his other students did. They took they took his teachings and and taught it to others, and it continued. And then there was a moment after all of this stuff, years down the way, where there was sort of like a new a re birth of Athens uh, in a more pure sense of what we remember what we what Athens is known for 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 the literature for the arts for uh, the sciences and all of that came afterwards but but I think some people attribute historians attribute to the seeds of Socrates that he planted and what happened to him his memory his his teachings continued to grow and actually became instrumental in Western um, societal evolution of the West. So whatever we started at, it is clear right now that Socrates was a huge um, uh, uh, a moment in time, a, few, a huge uh, character, not a character, uh, It's just a, a huge character in, in in history that that did something that left a mark in human history. 
just like the Christ, just like the Buddha. Wow. Amazing. All right. Oh, man. Oh, I love this. I love this. Oh, I can't get enough. This is this is it. This is my stuff right here, people. I love it. And we're about to get dirty, baby. We're about to get dirty. Woo! So, uh, I've laid out the, the thesis. I've laid out the premise a little bit. We went through the story, right? But I, want, I wanted to take you on a... Uh, on a listening journey, um, when some um, with with a better narrator than myself, you know. So I'm gonna play a video from the History Channel from a documentary um, series uh, called "The Ancient uh, Athens," right? As them, uh, and this part of the series actually just focuses in on what I was talking about around the time period that I was talking about with uh, Socrates and focuses in a lot on Socrates, right? So we're going to listen together. It's uh, about 30 minutes long, but it's okay. It's very, very entertaining, very informative. We're going to listen together. Then afterwards, we're going to come back and we're going to look and listen and we're going to talk about what we heard and we're going to come full circle and then we're going to go back to the thesis again about Socrates being the, the Christ figure, I'm sorry, a Christ figure in Athens, uh, and then we're gonna, you know, then we're gonna decide whether or not we can say yes or no to that part of it, right? So um, we're gonna in, uh, listen together. Thanks again to our, our friends at the History Channel um, uh, because they get all the they need. Um, sorry, we give them all the attribution because they put this together. Uh, and we are going to listen together. So just uh, please sit back and enjoy. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, uh, so I just wanted to. So you know how I tell you guys that I listen to documentaries? So I'm an audio guy. Um, I put documentaries on, but I just listen to the audio of it. You know, because uh, that my line of work, I'm on the road, but I have plenty of time to listen, right? Not plenty of time to see, but also the pictures and the images are, are quite as important. Now, they do add visual to it. I will put the uh, link in the description as we do here. So if you want to see it and you can see the art, you know, the architecture and all that stuff. It's always really uh, entertaining and fascinating also. Um, but this is how I do my research you know i'll find out i'll search out documentaries or pods or audiobooks right but specifically doc documentaries because if i want to focus in on a specific issue i can always find a documentary that narrows down the search to whatever topic or whatever it is that i want to discuss right and the research but then i also dig in a little bit uh through google and start seeking through looking for timelines like for instance i got all these timelines um here ready to go because I wanted to have dates and stuff ready to rock and names of leaders and politicians or whatever, right? Um, so yeah, that's what I was doing. And uh, all right, now let's get to our Socrates thingy. Let's enjoy together. A man unique in Athenian society. A man called Socrates. 
you were an ancient Athenian citizen, the first thing you'd see is a man who was unbelievably ugly. His head was too big. His eyes were too large. His nose was all the wrong shape. Socrates' appearance breaks every rule of classical Greek aesthetics, of the idea of proportion and measure. Socrates walked the streets of Athens barefoot, clad only in a dirty robe. He cared nothing for appearance or any of the other conventions of his day. Socrates was interested only in the mind. This unlikely figure would become the leader of a revolution. A revolution in thinking that had been gathering strength across the Greek world. This revolution had begun far to the east of Greece, in the legendary city of Babylon, where the world's first astronomers had gathered great records of the movement of the stars, the sun, and the moon. For they believed that these celestial bodies were gods. This knowledge and study of the heavens had been slowly spreading across the ancient world until it reached Greek colonies on the coast of what is modern-day Turkey. There, a shattering change occurred. For the Greeks took this astronomical knowledge and transformed it. They took the gods out of the heavens and replaced them with reason. Gradually, the Greeks begin to say, these are not persons. These are things. There's an orderly world which the human mind can actually capture. It is subject to our understanding. These Greeks began to calculate and predict the movement of the moon and stars through mathematics and logic, rather than using gods and spirits to explain everything. was the birth of science. The first great Greek scientist, a man named Thales, wrote the earliest book on navigation and how to sail using the stars as a guide. And on a journey to Egypt, Thales was the first man to measure the height of the Great Pyramid. Brilliant idea. He stood next to the pyramid until high noon when his shadow was exactly the same length as his height. Uh, and at that point he measured the shadow of the pyramid and accordingly knew the, <laughs> the height of the pyramid, which is actually an application of a rather sophisticated geometrical theorem. But Socrates was not interested in the stars and the heavens. He would use this new way of thinking, using reason and logic to study people. The great change comes with Socrates, who turns his back, so to speak, to the world of nature. What he cares about is the individual. You become an object of study and care. 
Socrates spent his days in conversation, walking the streets of Athens, talking and debating with anyone he met. With over 150,000 people now packed behind Athens' walls, he was in his element. One of the amazing things about Socrates is that he is the first fanatical urban individual. He loves the city. He makes life in the city one of his major concerns. Socrates' life was spent questioning the assumptions his fellow Athenians held about their lives. What they felt was right and wrong, what was good and bad. And he was happy to turn convention upside down. One of Socrates' followers recorded how, at the end of a drunken dinner party, Socrates proved to a fellow guest that he was, in fact, the better-looking of the two. My eyes must be more beautiful because they bulge out, and therefore I can see better. And by the same account, my nose is more beautiful because my nostrils flare out, and so I can therefore gather in more smell. This is typical Socrates, using reason and logic to examine the world anew. Socrates says you must make every decision based on your own understanding of what is good and what is not good, what is right and what is wrong. For Socrates, this freedom of thought was paramount even if it meant upsetting the whole notion of a beautiful nose. I tell you, let no day pass without discussing all the things about which you hear me talking. A life without this sort of examination is not worth living. But as Socrates spent his days in debate, his city was fighting a war. The Spartans invaded Athenian territory and set about burning all the farmland around the city. The Athenians became increasingly anxious. They could only watch from the city walls as their fields and crops were destroyed. But such was Pericles' reputation, he managed to convince the Athenians to stick with his plan. The city could rely on her fleet and shipments from overseas to survive. Little did Pericles know that this fleet now carried an even greater threat. One year into the war, the grain boats that fed the city brought with them an additional cargo, plague. a disease that would now devastate Athens. Pericles' plan couldn't anticipate difficulties that we now would suggest were rather likely uh, in those circumstances of crowding. And the results were horrendous. With the population crammed behind the city walls, the affliction spread like wildfire. The symptoms were horrific. 
The Athenian historian Thucydides, who lived through these years, recorded its effects. The body was suddenly seized, first with violent heats around the head and redness and inflammation of the eyes. And then the disease descended into the bowels, producing violent ulceration and uncontrollable diarrhea. The sufferings of individuals seemed almost beyond the capacity of human nature. Sufferers, racked with fever and overcome with unquenchable thirst, would crawl into the city systems and water mains to die. The city must have looked terrible, smelled terrible, been awful to be in, and terror must have reigned everywhere. plague would kill over a third of Athens' population. And then it struck the city's figurehead, Pericles. Like most brilliant men, like most people who have had great success all their lives, Pericles simply underestimated the degree to which some things are out of the control of the very best intelligence and the very best knowledge that there are. Pericles' death would have far-reaching consequences. It soon became clear that this one man had been the linchpin of the Athenian state. Without a single strong leader, countless figures now scrambled for the top position. And they were happy to do anything the people wanted, if it gave them power. For Pausanias, the effects were swift and dramatic. Pericles' successors, who now wanted to occupy the top position, simply followed the prejudices and passions of the masses in order to gain support. Athenian democracy now revealed a new and terrifying potential. The potential to slide into mob rule. Crippling her ability to fight a war. We know of only one man who stood up and attempted to calm the fevered assembly. Socrates. Socrates alone and against the very, very serious and vocal and aggressive and mad, furious reaction of the public stood his ground and said it was the wrong thing to do. He was going to vote against it. Socrates' principle of questioning the society he lived in now had a real and practical purpose. But in the end, Socrates was only one voice amongst the multitude, and he could not sway the assembly. 
generals were condemned to death by drinking poisonous hemlock. With the assembly in the hands of self-interested despots, one's mighty Athens began to lose her way. After the death of Pericles, Athens never again had a political leader with a well-thought-out general picture or a set of goals that he could pursue with reasonable hope of bringing them to fruition. The war against Sparta degenerated into a bitter, dragging conflict that spread over a decade. The Spartans ravaged the land around Athens. And the Athenian fleet kept the city supplied. Neither side was able to defeat the other. Deprived of victory, the Athenians grew increasingly frustrated. Were they not the greatest state in all of Greece? Surely the time must come for Athens to prove her power once and for all. Then, in the year 416 BC, a daring proposal was put before the assembly. A small Greek colony on the island of Sicily had asked for protection. Protection from a neighbor allied with Sparta. Why should the Athenians not come to their aid, humiliate their Spartan adversary, and perhaps conquer all of Sicily at the same time? As one Athenian addressed the assembly, This is the way we won our empire, and this is the way all empires have been won. Let us set out on this expedition, for it will destroy the arrogance of the Spartans, and at the same time, we shall become rulers of all Greece. was a bold plan to be executed on a vast scale. Requiring a great fleet of warships and a landing force of over 10,000 men. The Athenians threw themselves into the project with fervor. Armorers beat out new weapons. Soldiers tested out their equipment. Stores were loaded onto a fleet of Athenian triremes. And the shipwrights prepared their vessels for the sea. Then, to great fanfare, the mighty invasion force set out for Sicily. Six months later, word came back. The campaign was not going as quickly as hoped. They needed reinforcements. And then, 
nothing. No news at all. Then, in the autumn of 413 BC, a sailor arrived in the city. A man who needed a haircut. And as he talked to his barber, he told an appalling tale of a vast and terrible slaughter. It was the story of an invading army that had been pinned down where it landed. Of how its leaders had argued with each other about strategy. Of how their food and water had run out. Of how they'd attempted to ford a great river in a desperate attempt to escape. They rushed into it. All discipline lost and every man wanting to cross first. They fell over each other and trod each other underfoot and they drank thirstily. The water was foul, but still they went on drinking, mud, blood and all, the dead lying thick in the riverbed. This was how the Athenians discovered that they had been the victims of one of the greatest defeats in ancient history. Over 50,000 men had been killed or taken prisoner. Two entire fleets of Athens' prized triremes had been destroyed. The Sicilian campaign is a mess for a variety of reasons. First of all, it's a long way away. It's over six or seven hundred miles. Once they arrive, they squabble and fight about what to do. But perhaps the biggest problem is there's not a tactical reason to do it. There's not a strategic reason to do it. The motivation is highly self-interested. They believed it wrongly that they could go quickly in, raise the countryside, and win a quick victory and a rich tributary subject state. The Athenians, entranced by a vision of imperial glory, had in fact engaged in a pointless and vain campaign. With Athens' military power now crippled, her enemies began to close in. Persians, whom the Athenians had humiliated 50 years before, now saw the ideal opportunity for revenge. They approached the Spartans with the offer of help. The Persians have been watching this carefully, and they decide to intervene and subsidize the Spartans, and that subsidy is in the form of manpower for rowing and fleet construction. Previously, the Spartans had never been a naval nation. Now they had a fleet, 
paid for with Persian gold. With Athens' navy decimated by the defeat in Sicily, the Spartans could now blockade the Athenian harbors. The great grain convoys from Egypt and the colonies could no longer get through. And finally, the Athenians began to starve in the streets. turn to their patron goddess, Athena. At the height of Athens' glory only 30 years before, Heracles had honored her with the most glorious temple ever seen. But the goddess could offer no help now. Athens, once so sure of her preeminence in the Greek world, was now home to a population ravaged by plague and war, besieged and starving. With her treasuries empty and her once proud fleet crippled. In 404 BC, Athens finally surrendered to the Spartan commander, Lysander. Spartans' terms were heavy. The great walls which had defended the city were to be torn down. Her fleet was to be destroyed. We had this wonderful scene of Lysander sailing into the Piraeus and dismantling the Athenian fleet. That's important because the destruction is symbolically a destruction of the Athenian Empire. What remained of Athens' mighty navy was put to the torch, with only 12 ships allowed to remain. No longer would she rule the Mediterranean. The Athenians became convinced that they could do, finally, in the end, more than they really could. And I think this is really the, the point in which the potential that Athenian democracy brought about could turn to tragedy. They could achieve great things, they could not achieve all great things. But it would still take one more act of vanity and violence before the Athenians could redeem themselves. And their city could be reborn. Humiliated, their empire lost. The Athenians looked for someone to take the blame for their defeat. 
They searched for an enemy within their city walls. Someone who had dared to question their dreams of supremacy. They searched for Socrates. Socrates was a critic. He was critical of the thinking and the thought processes of his fellow citizens. And he was critical about the public affairs of Athens. For over 50 years, Socrates had been publicly questioning and attacking the traditions of Athenian life. And around him, he had gathered a group of youthful followers. Surely, this must have weakened the city's moral character, undermined her hunger for glory. Socrates was arrested on charges of undermining the state religion and corrupting the youth of the city. I am quite sure that especially in a relatively small society like Athens, someone who is constantly questioning the principles by which the society has traditionally governed itself, who we perceive as a very major danger by at least some people in society. You can easily see that a few hundred people might want him out, and they did. The Athenians would now put to trial the one man who dared to question the way they lived their lives. Socrates' trial would be held in Athens' central marketplace under a canopy to shade the fierce heat of the Greek sun. He would be tried by a jury of his fellow citizens, chosen at random, the same kind of group that had condemned six generals to summary execution only seven years before. Socrates would be given only a limited time to defend himself. For all speeches in the Athenian courts were timed by a water clock. One jar of water steadily running into another. But Socrates shows no fear in the face of his accusers. In fact, he is positively stubborn. To put it bluntly, I've been assigned to this city as if to a large horse which is inclined to be lazy and is in need of some great stinging fly. And all day long, I'll never cease to settle, here, there, everywhere, rousing and reproving every one of you. It is not an approach designed to win sympathy. Socrates is setting himself and his life against the entire Athenian state. He is doing what he thinks is the right thing to do. He thinks the life he has chosen, this life of thinking for yourself, is the best life. As he says in his speech, the unexamined life is not worth living for a human being. If Socrates had simply apologized to the court, he might well have been acquitted. But instead, he demands free dinners for life 
for all the work he has done. I can just imagine what that jury and the audience of that trial must have thought at the time. They must have been absolutely speechless. When the final vote came, the verdict could hardly have been a surprise. The court found Socrates guilty with the penalty of death. Socrates reacted with calm and serenity. Well now, it is time to be off. I to die and you to live. But which of us has the happier prospect is unknown to anyone but heaven. Socrates was taken from the court to Athens prison. The site of this prison still exists. We can still trace the layout of the cell in which Socrates was probably held. And we still have accounts of Socrates' last days from friends who visited him in his cell. Socrates would be executed in the traditional Athenian manner by drinking hemlock. Some of the hemlock cups used for the poison are still preserved. Death by hemlock is excruciatingly painful causing gradual paralysis of the central nervous system. But as the moment of his execution drew near, Socrates turned to his friends, treating the whole affair as if it were nothing at all. For me, the fated hour calls. In other words, I think it's about time I took my bath. I prefer to wash before drinking the poison rather than give the women the bother of washing me when I am dead. But as the hemlock was poured, his friends broke down. We have the account of one named Fido. In spite of myself, the tears came pouring down so that I covered my face and wept brokenheartedly. And then everyone in the room broke down, except Socrates himself, who said, really, my friends, what a way to behave. I'm told that one should make one's end in a reverent silence. Calm yourselves and be brave. As Socrates lay back on his bed and let the poison take effect, his friends watched in silence. Here was a man who was dying not for glory, not for fame and honor, but for the sake of his principles, because he believed that man should question the world around him. It was a sight they would never forget. Socrates, in his life and in his death, becomes a completely new Greek hero. 
from now on, the hero is a person of conviction, a person who will follow nothing but the dictates of his intellectual conscience, and that is a new conception of what a human being is like and what a good human being must be like. For centuries, the Athenians had believed in one ideal, the vision of a martial warrior hero. It had driven them to conquer great foes, to build a mighty empire. But now, in the depths of defeat, they discovered a new figure to venerate. Effigies of Socrates have been found amongst the ruins of the Athenian prison. Perhaps offerings to the dead philosopher. Perhaps the most important lesson that Socrates left is the need to be critical and the need to be self-critical. The interesting thing that I see in Athens in the years after the execution of Socrates is this same capacity to look at themselves and recognize that they have perhaps gone too far in the past and indeed to embrace a certain kind of maturity. Athens was never again a great imperial power. But neither did her democracy lapse again into mob rule. Instead, she became a city of intellectual inquiry. A haven of study and discussion. Where Socrates' students and his students' students slowly began to build a world based on reason. Plato tried to formulate the ideal society. Aristotle studied nature, establishing biology and zoology. And slowly the ideas and work of these Greek thinkers began to spread across the known world. One could say that a major part of the energy of the Athenians turns into building what one might call empires of thought. So where before you had Athens sending its ships to the various islands in order to collect taxes, here you have reason extending its dominion over all areas in which our lives are actually lived. Socrates' principles of reason of questioning assumptions and the world around you still endure. In the space of less than 200 years, the ancient Greeks transformed their world. For amongst these ruins, a few great figures carved a mighty empire. They invented democracy and politics. 
science and philosophy. They gave us literature and drama, art and monuments which still take our breath away. And ultimately, these Greeks taught us how to reason and think. Two and a half thousand years later, their astonishing achievements continue to shape our world. I like the, um, you know, audio-wise, the dramatization and stuff, like, forget about it, right? Now, you know, that's what I love about listening to documentaries on audio is that your imagination, as you hear the, you know, the fire or the, like, when they're showing battles, you hear the swords clanking or whatever, right? Like, just, I love it. Este, yeah, so I took some notes and we are going to examine what we just heard. Um, a lot of interesting points, uh, and um, I took plenty of notes, so uh, we're going to go over a few of these things. So, the, uh, so let's just, so we're going to just write real quick. So the idea, the idea, the uh, thesis at the beginning was, you know, was Socrates... A, the Christ figure or a Christ figure of Athens, right? And we went through a brief history of Athens. In not even, that was nothing, actually. That was just a short time span of 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 Athens history, right? Um, as the so one of the I want to as we go through some of these things, I want to point out so this is the thesis of writing i want to just kind of point out these ideas and stuff that jumped out at me and i want to point them out to you because that's part of the thesis of the entire thesis right uh some of these ideas right so so as we looked uh so when when the documentary started talking about athens is we were at a point to where they were getting prideful right so i was talking about um, their society was growing they were getting strong and then they got pride they got prideful right and and that pride came in in forms of military pride also like wanting to conquer and right they were fighting the Spartans and to see who's like gonna be the boss of of all of Greece right and uh, that that wanting to be the boss of Greece right the big dogs of Greece as they led them to make some bad decisions remember because everything they decided on i just want to remember remind y'all that everything they decided on in athens was voted by the people okay so the people's not by a group of people like an olig uh, a, a um, oligarchy the people the majority of the people who voted men over 18 and whatever right it's them so they started making bad but we would look back you know Monday morning quarterback looking back and say, "Damn, that was a bad choice." But the but because the people started making bad choices, right? So this pride started 
um, uh, growing amongst the the Athenian citizens, um, and um, and you know, so the part of the thesis that I was talking about a, a second ago is like right, like for instance, the Bible shows this, and I remember, I want you to keep thinking cyclical. I want you to think of these stories in general, what they're telling us in general, right? Different stories, let's say, of the Jews, what we just heard about the Athenians, right? And and what other, other stories you may have heard of, let's say, other civilizations. And if you haven't, then it's okay because we could compare these two. A lot of similarities. We know the story about the Jews because it's, it's what's in our, it's in our Bible, right? What we know and then we all kind of know those stories somewhat, right? But there seems to be that cyclical thing, right? The pride, and then, um, so, so, let, I'm gonna use modern Christian language, right? Like church language, right? So the the people started getting away from God, <laughs> but it, it's different because back then they had different gods, right? But um, here at thesis. We see God as uh, in in the most layman terms possible that I can say is Mother Nature, right? The way things are, the way things happen, cause and effect, gravity, right? These things that can't be changed—that is what God is, right? And in 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 a nutshell, in in the thesis, in the thesis translation of what God is. But the people, um. So, so when we, when, when I say they got away from God, they got away from the way things are, the way things are supposed to be, the way things were, right? Um, order and Mother Nature, cause, effect, good decisions, weighing out this, you know what I'm saying? So they got away from that with the pride because they wanted to conquer, they wanted to be the the big big dogs, right? So you heard the part where they said they so. Their their fields and stuff were getting burned by the by the Spartans because these battles went on for a long time, and they said, okay, we can handle it. We can handle it. We got a big fleet. Our fleet can support us. Uh, they can bring us food. We'll be okay, right? Remember, this is the people deciding, not a strong leader, not a king, not a monarch. The people, like straight up, pure democracy in its purest form. Okay. So people were like, yeah, we're good. We got a good fleet. And what happened? They brought the plague. Uh-oh, plague. Plagues? Hold on. And remember, right? Revival and all this religion. I ain't trying to push nothing. But the stories in the Bible talk about plagues, right? Something about when the Jewish people, and I'm not even certain about this, but this is sort of what my memory says. Something like the Jewish people, when they, always, when they got away from God, you know, and I'm putting this in quotes, God would send plagues or a plague right kind of as a punishment right god would punish the people by sending a plague now when we look at it pragmatically or scientifically or we just step back and like reality like i'm right here and it's happening right in front of us okay the people are being prideful at the Athenian citizens are being prideful because of their strength and their in their naval force and they want to conquer right uh they want territory and whatever comes with that uh, Esther, and uh, so they're kind of getting away from the way things should be. Oh, we're good with the boats and this and that. Uh oh, you're you're now your your survival is depending. Since you wanted to fight the the uh, the Spartans, they're burning all your crops. So now you got to depend on crops getting brought in from other places. 
which hence brings in mice and rats or whatever carrying disease and whatever and then we heard what happens right boom pride uh oh god quote unquote mother nature the universe uh, order when you get away from that order that is certain things happen one of the things that happens is plague okay that's thesis so we saw what happened right <clears throat> Uh, and and so then there was a leader up to that point, and um, forgive me, it's either Heracles or Pericles, right, with a P or a H. I couldn't get it, my hearing, but it's one of the two, and I don't want to look it up right now because I don't want to interrupt the flow. So what, he was keeping the state in order. Remember, these were not we want to say leaders, but he wasn't a a leader and a politician the way we know today. He wasn't a governor, nothing like that. People rose up amongst the polity, right? Amongst the people, amongst the political, not class, but amongst the polity, amongst the people who were who were wise, who were smart orators. And then also if they had influence, you know, money might help. But also other people were just really good at what they do. And they had, you know, I don't know about connections, but, you know, they built good networking or whatever, right? And so this guy was the linchpin like they said he was keeping it together but when he died all hell broke loose why because now there wasn't a clear leader in quotes right kind of leading the the people with wisdom and stuff now it was warring factions political factions trying to see who's going to gain power and who's going to be the one that people are going to be following now and stuff because a lot of at this point at this point and see even in the documentary they said man it was like the de deterioration happened really rapidly, you know, like it shows an example of how quickly people can can um, can fall away, uh, you know, can fall, can backslide. There we go. Let's I'm going to use language, you know, Christian language, church language, so just so people can understand. And you know how it is, right? This is how we do it. So so real quick. And remember, they, the system was still the same. There wasn't no strong leader. There wasn't a, a, a tyrant, nothing. They still voted on everything, even while the wars were going on, even while the plagues were going on, all of it, right? So, like you said, mob rule, right? Mob rule. But check this out. It wasn't mob rule like the way we see, like, in, like the way we're talking about several shows back, like what we see in the streets of, of you know, these cities where they're having riots and all that. That's a different type of mob rule. This this mob rule was actually um, uh, like a democratic mob rule, you know, because now, you know, they're voting on everything. I want to keep stressing that so you can understand the, the significance of it. It's very significant that they vote on everything, okay? So, so the people lost their, their, their sense of order or whatever, and they started voting and doing crazy stuff. And remember, they voted to 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 um, to execute those generals, right? Mob rule, okay? It's 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 tyranny of the majority. Um, now, real quick, little side a little side note thesis. So our our founding fathers, when they developed, um, when they were when they gathered together. To, to figure out how they were going to develop this new governing system. They knew all of this. 
They knew the history of Athens. They knew the history of the Greek states. They knew all of this stuff. So they knew about major the the uh, tyranny of the majority. And and you know how I bring up that they wanted to put protections for you as a person, as an individual. They wanted to put those protections in from to you to protect you from whatever government we uh, build, right? That was their that was their um, that was what they were doing, right? From their angle, hey, we're building, we're putting in protections for you, the citizen, from this government that we are building. But the the very first um, protections are gonna be for you, the citizen. You know, uh, the you know we call them the the you know the the Bill of Rights, right? All of that stuff were had to be solidified in our founding because it was the protection from government. Because they knew that governments can become tyrannical. They knew that people lose their ways. They knew that 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 a let's say a pure democracy can lose its ways because they knew what happened in Athens. They knew this, so they tried and worked and figured out ways to to um, decentralize all that power and have all these checks and balances to to protect the people as best as possible. Okay, <clears throat> mob rule. From mob rule. So we saw what happened in Athens. We see, well, let's put ourselves in that present time. We see what is happening to Athens at the time. You know, the the tyranny of the democracy, right? And then, so, so another problem um, that I not that that I think, but another problem that they had was um, their desire to to become an empire. That was another um, another mistake that was made by the people, you know, because because whatever they were voting for came from a sense of whatever it was that they wanted, and that sense, as we look in history, was the sense uh, that they wanted to become an empire. They wanted to be the the they wanted to conquer Greece, you know. But they needed to start with with the Sparta because Sparta was the next strongest, right? They were probably equally strong in different ways, and then all the other states were much smaller and much easier easier able to be subjugated. Let's say if if it became that. But first and foremost, Sparta was in the way of that dream of let's say an Athenian empire. See, this Greek empire was a confederacy, right? They worked together, yet they fought each other. But uh, and they all work together under the banner, and they, you know, under the Greek banner, like I was saying. But the desires of Athens to become its part or the heart of an empire was another huge mistake that they made. You know, the desire for empire, because remember, at the beginning of Athens, it was about the individual liberty. Um, the per each person can vote. Each person is a part of this society, right? Liberty, individual. And at this point, where we're at right now, with the desire for empire, that is completely opposite of individual. Completely opposite of what their fundamental idea was at the at the start of this new Athens, right? The democ demo democratic Athens. That was a, there was a rock there. Their rock was individual 
liberty, participation, we all get to say what happens in our society equally, not from a king, you know, we're all kings, basically, you know, because we all can decide, we can all come together, and you know, this idea of voting, you know, of, of let's, a major, right, we have a group of people, we all vote, it's, the, it's a bargain, because when it comes to the voting part, it's a part, it's a part where we say, okay, we're bargaining, like, we, we're going to go over some issues and we're going to decide on these issues and we agree that the outcome of this vote that we're going to take together, we all agree that we're all going to abide by that vote. You know what I'm saying? It's like this thing, this bonding. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> ay, ay, ay. So, that was the rock. Individualism, freedom, liberty. That was the rock of Athens. And by the time they got to the desire for empire, they were, you know, all the way, they, they were, they had turned away from that rock, from that ideal that they started with. They turned away from it. And that was a big no-no. Because that desire for, for empire is what was, was another arrow in the back or whatever, like another wound to Athens, you know. Got Sparta over here kicking their ass on this side. You got the plague kicking their ass internally. You know what I'm saying? But the desire itself has other consequences also. You know, and then they did the Sicilian campaign, right? That little um, war that I was talking about, right? The, uh, uh, what was the word I used? Uh, anyhow, right? They wanted to go fight uh, Sparta through Sicily. And it was far away. It was 600 miles away. You know, it was going to cost them all this money. And and the people voted, yes, let's go do this this fight, this battle. Uh, because that was, they figured that's what they needed to do in order to become the great empire that they had in mind. And what happened? They got routed. They just left and never came back. And what? And about a year or two later, I think it was a year later, um, remember the guy who wanted a haircut? And he brought that story back? They got their asses kicked. Why? Because of the desire for empire. And money, because remember the documentarian said, hey, well, they conquered Sicily. Este, um, uh, was it Sicily? Yeah. Este, they can get a tributary. Tributary means taxes, means money. Right? So now they're looking at money, desire for money. Maybe not territory because it was little, but see, their goal was to conquer Sparta. So territory was on their mind, but money was also on their mind, right? And then, of course, back to the thesis real quick, in, in the scriptures and stuff like that, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure... I can't think real quick on my feet about what the Buddha says about money, but you know the love of money in the in the Bible in the in the Christian Bible the love they says for something like for the love of money is the root of all evil, uh, right? I hope I said it correctly. Or there's plenty of translations, but the love of money is the root of all evil. Something similar to that. If I said it wrong, forgive me. Pero we can see that so they want tributaries. They want, you know, money, taxes from these lands that they want to conquer. The love of money, right? So there's another no-no. There's another thesis no-no right there. 
Um, and the story that, oh man, this was so crazy, right? So the story of the guy, the barber, or I'm not the barber, the guy who wanted a haircut, uh, the sailor who, he says, man, I heard, he knew the story, right? Like these dudes landed, right? And they got cornered, you know, they were cornered right off the bat, first of all. And then they started arguing with each other about what's the best tactic or which way should we? So they took the democratic ethic where they vote for everything with them um, it, on the campaign, which was a huge mistake um, on their part. Um, uh, but ethically and uh, morally and like I can't even look. We're gonna break this shit down, baby, real quick, right? So they took the they took they took that um, idea of of democracy, right? The way they govern in the city, and it it bled into the camp the war campaign because when they landed, instead of a general or a leader and a clear defined um, um, a clear defined goal let's say right it's a campaign what are we going to do well we're here to conquer sicily how we're going to do it like this this and this and then if something happens contingency plans right none of it because they took this ethic of democracy with them on the on the on the war campaign and then they couldn't even decide what they wanted to do. So they got routed. Okay. Now, for you fans out there, George, I know you're going to love this, bro. Uh, the the art of war. I don't have it in front of me, but you guys who know the art of war know this part. And I'm going to paraphrase it, but I know you're going to understand exactly the part I'm talking about. Okay. So in the art of war, Sun Tzu says, hey. The way you govern a city, you can't govern your army like that. Because an army is for, right? And now, this is not what he's saying. The first part is what he said. You can't govern your army the way you govern your city, right? There has to be a clear distinction between the way you govern your armed forces compared to the way you govern your city. And he's talking to the, um, to the sovereign, right? The power. Whoever the sovereign is, he's saying, hey, this is the way you got to do it. Now, why do I say that? Because look what happened. Perfect example of what happened in the in the Sicilian campaign. That ethic of, of voting and trying to decide and and um, and, um, you know, talking it out and trying to figure it out. And what should we do? Right. Was it, it was their downfall. Sun Tzu, Sun Tzu said it, right? So, in the big scheme of picture, right, we like to step back and look at the big scheme of things, the big picture, the big thesis. You can see that over here on this part of the world, Sun Tzu's saying, hey guys, this is how we govern and this is how we do war. Don't mix the two. And then over here, we have an example of what Sun Tzu was saying. We see it right here. Uh-oh, hey, Athenians. You messed up. Not because they didn't listen to Sun Tzu, and I'm not saying anything like that, because there was probably no, you know. Uh, but in the big, if we step back, when we look, when we look back, you know, they, they did some, they did, uh, the Athenians did wrong, they had, they made wrong choices. But when you step back and look at like law, order, right, the way things are, Sun Tzu, the art of war, the art of war is the law of war, right? 
So when you look at the law of war, the law of war says, hey, don't do this because this will happen. And see, Sun Tzu didn't say because this will happen. He just says, hey, don't do this. And it's self-explanatory. You know? And he does get into a little bit of, but, but it, you know what I'm saying? And then we look at what happened there in the Sicilian um, campaign. And boom, perfect example. You know? And you know, another thing that just jumped out at me. You know, uh, remember, remember CHOP or SHOP or whatever they did in Portland? They surrounded a few blocks and they made like their own little town or whatever. CHOP. Uh, I saw videos, so there was a lot of footage coming out of CHOP. And uh, they had these um, these councils of people, like, talking and trying to figure out, you know, like, how are we going to run shop? Okay, and, and you know, this is a natural thing that happens in natural society, you know, and, but see the ethic that they brought into chop, right? So when we, like, let's step back. So remember, we we're talking about the ethic that the, that the Athenians brought on that campaign, right? The voting and all that stuff, the, you know, instead of having a clear, decisive um, strategy for winning, right? So I saw some of these videos of, of these 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 folks in the chop city uh and you know i guess they're trying to figure out their constitution or like what they stand for or whatever and and there was a group of people like that sitting in a park a big group of people and you know somebody would be talking and then the next person would get up and be talking and they would talk about ideas and then they would sort of vote and you know stuff like that um you know, but when you hear their ideas, I mean, and, and like not to like, oh, they were wacky ideas. No, but they were bringing that ethic, that political correct ethic, that um, you know, whatever these 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 um, um, ideas are, these modern, let's say, leftist leftist ideas, or or these radical ideas or whatever. They were bringing that ethic to the table while they were trying to to decide on how they were going to govern their new newly formed city right shop or whatever it was called and i don't know it was just something that jumped out at me uh because it, it was pre when you hit when i was looking at these videos uh you would hear it and what they were saying is it was all infused with with um you know uh with uh, gender gender stuff and color of your skin stuff and Equality, you know, the stuff that we hear all the time, you know, but it was all molded into what they were saying to each other on how they were going to, whatever they were going to do, you know, and that just jumped out at me. So, so I wanted to point that out um, because it just jumped out and it, since it happened recently, you know, I wanted to make sure I, um, I pointed that out. Okay. Um, so... You see, and so the folks started losing their way. You know, they started um, uh, arguing. Uh, I mean, well, when we're talking about um, the campaign itself, of course, they were lost. But the Athenians themselves, the people, the citizens themselves were losing their way. They were losing their way. Este, and... Um, and you see, when when history has taught us when there's when there is um, disorder within a city within a state, you know, I say city, let's say city states, right, or a nation, they're open to attack from outside forces. 
right? So when Athens was in disarray, the Persians said, ah, oh, you know what? These, these Athens, we got a chance. So what did they do? They partnered up, they partnered up with the Spartans and they kicked the Athenians' butts all over the place. But because of the disarray from within. If the folks in Sparta would have kept on the same path that they were on. And you know, tweaked here and there. Yes, definitely. They could have became um, the center of the empire. They could have, we would have been talking right now about the Athenian empire. Instead of the Greek empire. But because of their own faults, of the people of their own faults, they rotted from within and their destruction came from within. Well, well, from within and without, my bad, because the Spartans kicked their butts, right? But the poison started from within, the cancer started from within. If, if, they, wouldn't have, if they wouldn't have poisoned themselves, right? If they, if they wouldn't have started destroying themselves from within, they would have never opened up themselves to being destroyed from without. Right? The weakness, you know, that, that it opens up when a nation is, is, is at each, it's, 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 it's eating itself from within. You know, and, and, it, and that shows its way in many different forms, you know, in governance and the way that people behave and the whatever, right? So you can see that through history, and we can see that even in modern history, um, you know, whatever, right? As the, another another thing, um, right? So back to the thesis, back to big thesis, right? So, uh, right? So the prophets of old would say, "Hey, people, you're getting away from God," and then God would send punishments, right? Um, uh, uh, what was the first one? Plague, plague, right? And war, war was one of the punishments right war and plague what, what's another what's another oh famine famine so the athenians started experiencing famine why because they were getting away from the order that kept them fed that kept society going the same order that brought their stature up to what it to what it was at that time that order they got away from that order and the people started starving not only because of what was happening from within, but also because of their quest for uh, empire, right? Fighting with the Spartans, Spartans burning up their crops. So people got hungry, started dying. See the connection between all these things? Dang, wow, man. The way they just like, you know, right? And again, for my new listeners, I'm not pushing religion, I'm not pushing Christianity, none of that. We're looking at these stories together, right? We're looking at the cyclical nature of of whatever written history is, right? And we're just comparing it. We're comparing what's written in the Bible to what is what what is the story of the Athenians. And then there's going to be much more of this that we look at, but there's plenty of examples throughout human history of these of these stories. And see, a few shows back, I was bringing up about these pieces of the puzzle, right? And this Athenian story is another piece of the puzzle of, of human of human history. And we just got, and you know, and I did bring it up last time as a piece, but today we got a, a very high resolution, a high definition view of that specific piece of the puzzle, the Athenian piece of the puzzle of human 
of the human epic, right? Okay, but hey, we're not lost. We're still on it. We're going somewhere. Because remember, we're still on the thesis from the beginning of the show. We were not lost, okay? Este, a, a couple of things about Socrates, uh, because we're getting to the point. You know, Socrates, when you look at his writings, not his writings, when you look at what he, what was written of the things that he said, he questioned gods, the whole thing about gods, right? The um, documentarian brought up the idea of, of the gods, how they, the, how, how the philosophers looked at the ideas of gods, but turned them into things like ideas here, but before us, you know, fertility in the ground for the, you know, because there was a goddess of fertility or whatever for the food to grow. But they started seeing it as more like science and stuff like that, right? So that, that, that will happen. Ah, that's happened. Pero Socrates always questioned this idea of gods. Remember, one of the charges, I don't know if the documentary said it, but if you if you look at the four dialogues, one of the charges that they brought up against him was not obeying the gods or not following the gods of Athens, you know, the goddess, Athena, right? Because he always questioned the idea of this goddess, Athena, and the power of the goddess and all these things, right? His questioning, right? So that was one of the the uh, charges against them was, hey, you're questioning the God or whatever, right? I just wanted to bring that up because his idea of God was something else, something of like what we think of God today, like a, a something bigger, a force, a universal something, you know? Science was fresh back then. There wasn't all this stuff new, but he had an inkling, like that voice inside of his mind, that voice inside of his head told him there was something different. Something bigger, you know, and he listened to that voice, that voice that would tell him no, that voice that would tell him yes, that it would agree with him or not agree with him when he brought up an idea, you know. So his idea or his quest to find knowledge and wisdom was also somewhat a quest to find God because his, his quest to find truth, remember, over here uh, in the West in, or in, the Christ, in Christian in the Christians, in the religion, right, quote-unquote religion, it says uh, that, that, right, God is the truth. I am the truth and the way, right? So Socrates was looking for the truth. His, his search was always for the truth. Truth, whatever truth is. That was what he was searching for. And in the same, in the same tone, he was searching for what God is because he didn't think of a statue with a power, a power coming from a statue. And, you know, those type of things. That's the kind of uh, of uh, inquisition that he would make about these things. And he became the enemy of the state because of his inquisition. You know, um, he... Um, he talked about, um, uh, uh, you know, be paying attention to life, and and you know, he said the examined life isn't the unexamined life isn't worth living. You know, to look around and see everything in its purest form, in its best forms. You know, it's like there was something the good. He called it the good, and from that idea of what he called the good is. Is sort of in my in my translation is what what we got the idea of this word 
God, right? The good, because God represents the good. The good represents what God is. So he was seeking that all his life. Through inquisition, through communication, you know, we say through teaching, but he wasn't a teacher, but people saw him as a teacher simply because of what he was saying. Right? Um, it's that Jesus um, questioned uh, the Jewish society. When, 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 when Jesus, you know, showed up on the scene, he was questioning the Jewish society because remember he was born, he was a Jew, he was born into this society, and he started questioning the way they worship and you know and those type of things, right? So he started questioning the Jewish society. Este, and um, and uh, and not only the Jewish society, but remember the remember the Gentiles, right? The regular folk, the people who weren't Jews, the the Romans, the Roman citizens, the other folks, right? He, you know, when when this when 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 Jesus came around, he he was reaching out to everyone, not just the Jews, you know, everyone also other than the Jews, and they gave him the the name the Gentiles is everyone other everyone who isn't a a Jew, right? So Jesus came for all the people. His teachings were for all people, not just the Jews. Right? It's the, Jesus, when he came, he reproved the people. He came and said, look at your behavior. You know, but, but in a loving fashion, of course. But he reproved more um, kind of his, his, his aim was at the person as, on an individual level. But also at the at the leaders and the teachers, right? The the, the uh, not the teachers, the um, Pharisees, right? These heads of church, the churches or whatever. He reproved them. Reproof, right? Reprove, right? As them. And that's what Socrates did. He reproved the people of Athens. Hey, you guys. I mean, in his own way, though, right? Not. Not really aggressive or loudly vocally, but basically what he was doing is he was telling the Athenian people, "Hey, look, look at the look at what we're doing. Look at what you're doing. Look at the decisions we've been making. Look at the way and the path that this can take us." And like I said, it wasn't that direct, but in his own way. Socrates questioned Athenian society. Jesus questioned Jewish society and gentle society, Gentile society, all society. You know, Socrates wanted people to do the right things. Jesus wanted people to do the right things. Este, when, when Socrates was sentenced to death he accepted his condemnation willingly he accepted it willingly 
He accepted it. He was calm and serene. You know, there's part of the story in uh, one of the four dialogues. Forgive me for not knowing which one it is. But, you know, his friends, even some of the jailers, like, were like, they loved that because the people loved them so much. They were like, you know, we'll escape you. We'll, we'll, we'll get you out of here. I'll leave the gate. I'll leave the door open. And, man, just take off and go into exile and go into hiding. You're too important. But he accepted his, his fate. And he said, no, no, no. He believed in the rule of law. He believed in all of that so much that he was fine with the decision. He accepted it willingly. Jesus Christ, the Christ, accepted his punishment willingly also and was calm and serene about it. You know, when we look at the Athenian story, you know, their history is the Greek history. So I brought up the heroes of old earlier, you know, Homer and the Odyssey, right? And all those heroes of old. That was the myth of the hero in Greek, in, in Greece. That's them. But you, but you see how the documentary pointed out that the new hero of Greece is not the warrior, but the philosopher, the intellectual. You know? That's them. When we look at the story, let's say, of, of the Jews, David, was a warrior. King David was a warrior. He was one of the early kings of, of the Jewish, you know, kingdoms, right? Of the Jewish people. He was a warrior. That story, that epic of the warrior, king. And then you move through their history and you end up at Jesus. Which is you know, um, in the Gospel of Thomas, he asks the uh, the disciples, who do you say I am? And one of them says, a wise philosopher. And when you look at Jesus' words, you know, and now I'm, I'm a philo I study philosophy. And when you look at Jesus' words more and more, I see a lot of, I see philosophy there. Also, but see, wisdom itself, philosophy itself, that truth itself, you know, because we, we're seeking knowledge, we're seeking wisdom, we're seeking truth. So whatever that truth is itself reveals itself. So whether uh, a Socrates or Jesus, right? Or, or, or a figure like that throughout history that the uh, revelation will come to them because it comes from the same place. Not that it comes from God. No, because the revelation itself reveals what is. 
So with the story, the epic of the Jews ends up with Jesus. I mean, and, and, I mean, this part, not it doesn't, not, you know, not technically or anything like that, but what we're saying here, right? And the character, this figure, this Christ figure is a love, a compassion, a philosopher, a philosopher figure. A, a, a figure uh, a humility a figure of uh, poverty right not 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 poverty but you know possessions you know you don't no land no possessions walked around barefooted Socrates did talking to people and Socrates did it all for the love of of truth, for the seeking of truth, for the love of the people, for the betterment of the people. When you look in general, what Jesus did is the same thing, for the love of, of you, of you, of the people. Jesus is the new hero figure. Now, yes, the, the the idea of the Jesus the, the of the Christ figure is now like a hero figure and see in Athens in the end the philosopher Socrates was the hero the hero started with with uh, the heroes of old warriors killers ended up with a peaceful philosopher in search of love and wisdom. A world based on reason is what he seeked, what Socrates wanted. And after, we see what happens after, afterwards, there was an explosion, but of the idea, like, Athens returned, once they lost it all, Athens returned to its core, fundamental, ideal principles of thought and art and creation and dialogue. They returned to the basics, to the fundamental idea of what it was that they had going on from the new beginning of Athens. They rose up from the ashes. They had to get knocked down in order to rise up again. And what we know about Athens now, you know, is due um, also because of the change that happened after they got knocked down. All A lot of the stuff was accumulating over the years because because uh, the Greek states and that those territories were, were populated from long ago, from up to maybe even up to 2000 BC. Right, but but this time period that we're focusing in on is somewhere between the you know let's say 550 uh, moving into about you know they 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 condemn Socrates around 399 BC. So you know what I'm saying? That's the kind of time frame that we're looking at. And still till today, 2,000 years later, we still talk about Socrates and his teachings, quote unquote. So, oh, and they killed him for it.
Joe coming for a full circle. Was Socrates a Christ figure of Athens? We've laid out all the um, data, or a lot of the data. We've looked at it, we've listened to it. And I say yes. I say yes. In the thesis world, we can see the, com the, the comparable. Um, in the, in, in, in the quote-unquote religious world, there's a huge difference. But right now we're looking at things just directly right in front of us what it is. So I say yes. I say yes that, that Socrates is a Christ figure of Athens. Because of what came from him afterwards. I think throughout history we can probably find many, many examples like this. You know. Well, I said many, many, but probably not. Probably not. Probably not many, many. Because these, these moments seem... Because look, it changed the course of mankind. Him, I mean. All of it together, Athens and everything that happened in Greece. But, but Socrates. One man. Jesus, one man, right? So we've come full circle. This is what it's all about. And I love it. I love it. So I'll also let you uh, come to your own um, conclusion of the thesis of, of this particular um, right este, but I say yes <laughs> and I loved it I loved it I loved it so much look folks you know you understand you've been listening you know how much I love you know all of it but Socrates and all of it I mean this this today this I this I don't even know how long we've been on the air we're probably getting close to about two and a half hours this time just flew by. Look, I love this. This is what it's all about. Let's. This is what my mind. I mean, my. I got my gears turning right now, and I love it. And I love it. And I'm sorry. I'm just so excited. I'm just so excited. I'm so stoked that we got to do this together. And I hope you enjoyed it too. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I hope it sparked a fire inside of you to think like, whoa, hold them up. Ah, this is pretty rock and roll. Let me look at it. You know what I'm saying? Check it out. Dig. It's all there for you. It's all there for you to do. It's all there for you to seek it out. It's all there for you to search. Just put in the work. I love it. I love it. I love it. Wow. I want to thank you, man. Uh, I want to thank you, folks, for, for sticking around. If you sticked around this long and you liked it and you enjoyed it, oh, man, I just, I'm stoked. And I want to thank you for sticking all the way through. And if you did enjoy it, please uh, tell your friends about this episode. You know, share it on your, on your wherever, right? On your socials or whatever. Or just tell your friends about it. If you have friends that are pod listeners and you think they like this sort of stuff, please let them know. 
And don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you will get notifications of when we uh, put out new material because we don't put content out every day. Um, so you'll know. And please check on us often. Check back often, like every every day, every couple of days, you know what I'm saying? Uh, if you get your notification on your, on your Spotify or wherever you listen, uh, because we're available on all platforms. Wherever you listen, if you get your little, you know, just click the subscription so you get your notifications so you know when we put a new show out. And, uh, and you know, I say this a lot, but I, I just mean it. You know, I mean it so much. Uh, Y'all mean a lot to me. Y'all mean so much to me because I'm here and with you and we're a little family and we're building our family little by little and we're building our, our minds together. We're expanding our, our thoughts together, you know, and I'm just so glad that I get to do it with you guys and that you are here with me. So I appreciate your time. I appreciate your time and your patience and uh, just, you know, just hanging out. All right. Um, any housekeeping? No. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm going to put the, the link to the the description in the... <laughs> you can tell it's late. This is a late show. I'm working late tonight, guys, but it's okay. I had to go through. So anyhow, it'll be in the description. Um, reach out to us. Email is in the description description also um what else uh, that's it okay guys um hey check some of that stuff out uh the athens story is amazing all of it is amazing greek history is amazing all of it history itself is amazing and we're gonna keep at it uh, all right man um thanks again for sticking all the way through i love you guys tell your friends Check back soon, and I'll have something for you uh, soon, all right? Stay safe out there, guys, and we'll hang out. We'll hang out soon. All right, guys, peace out. This is Thesis.